Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, December the 12th. And thank you so much for tuning in today. On today's program, I'm going to be helping you avoid wait times when you're heading to a walk-in clinic. A website called Medimap.ca helps people know the best place to go when looking for care when you're looking to also save some time. It is that time of year now when, you know, your kids are coming home from school with the sniffles and maybe you want to take them to a clinic. Maybe you aren't feeling 100% and need to see someone. Well, maybe you can sense that flu bug creeping up and you want to try to get ahead of it. Where's the best place to go? Well, Medimap.ca will help you make that tough decision. Although, that said, Kamloops isn't the best place as it seems that the few clinics that exist often fill up before they even open. So I'll be speaking with the CEO of that website at the end of today's show. In about 20 minutes, I'll be chatting with the Associate Dean for Automotive Programs at BCIT with support from Clean BC. A new electric vehicle training program for automotive technicians has successfully completed its first pilot and will now be available to the public starting in 2020. The newly developed EV maintenance training program at the British Columbia Institute of Technology will make sure the province's workforce has the skills and training needed to support more electric vehicles on the road with, uh, of course, under government Clean BC plan, all new light duty vehicles sold in BC by 2040 will be zero emission vehicles and of course if we're going to have all those vehicles on the road someone needs to know how to fix them so BCIT is taking up the lead and developing that course to make sure that people know how to fix your car. That will be uh, Mubasher Faruqi coming up in about 25 minutes and uh, coming up here shortly I will be speaking about concerns over funding for sexual assault centers in British Columbia. Kamloops City Councilor Dale Bass says there used to be money from the province to help these centers provide the required care, but back in 2004, it was cut. That's when the Kamloops Sexual Assault Center had to do away with its phone system. A sexual assault center does, of course, help people who've been sexually assaulted work through the system from the hospital to counseling to dealing with the legal system. So, uh, big, big uh, resource for people to use. Uh, currently, Kamloops Sexual Assault Center has volunteers available on weekends and nights, but since it's volunteer-based, uh, getting the swift help that someone may require just cannot, unfortunately, be assured. So, I'll be speaking about that here in a little bit of time. And, of course, uh, if you hadn't heard... Uh, we had breaking news off uh, off the top there out of the news that uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is resigning from his post. He is stepping down and will no longer be the leader of the Conservative Party. So when we look ahead to a new election, I guess that would be uh, 2023 as it stands right now. Uh, there will be someone new running against Justin Trudeau for the Conservative banner in that election. Who it will be? Well, we'll have to wait to find that out. Now, before we get too deep into the show, I wanted to take a quick look back at last night's Kamloops Blazers action. Uh, the team has been giving up leads left and right here on their current road trip through the Prairies. Uh, they were forced to win in a shootout in Brandon, and they lost in overtime to Winnipeg after having three goal leads in both of those contests. The Blazers did have a three goal lead again last night in Regina. Were they able to pull out that victory? Well, here is play-by-play -play announcer John Keane wrapping up last night's game in Regina. 
Bring it to center on the left wing side. Nyhoff chips that puck in deep behind the goal. Tried to center. Ooh, that one hits. Schmeeman, he is shaken up here. Trying to fight this one off, but he is shaken up. Going to stay out there. Pat's pressure. Denemy through a screen. A shot. Loose puck stopped. Blazers try to get it out. They will. Hughes. Schmeeman now can get to the bench here. He is in a lot of pain as he goes to the Blazer bench. And the Blazers score on the empty net here. Hughes will put it away. I was watching Schmeeman battle there to the bench. And I think he's going to be okay. We hope so. And the Blazers have put it away with a Ryan Hughes empty netter up the ice the other way. So don't mind me as I pay attention to something completely away from the play. And with a minute 32 to go, the Blazers have put an empty netter on the board to make it 4-1. to one. So there you go. John Key not really paying attention to where the puck was, but uh, still I built to uh, let you know that the Kamloops Blazers were able to come away with the big 4-1 to win. Another three-goal lead, but this time they were able to hang on. It was a big win, I think, as it is not too early to be watching the standings here. Uh, Kamloops remains first in the BC division in the WHL's Western Conference, and thanks to a loss by the Rockets last night in Winnipeg, the Blazers have restored that four-point cushion for first place. Uh, the Rockets had 17 points in their last nine games prior to last night, but that point streak has come to an end, and now there is a little breathing room, like I said, at the top of the division, albeit not a whole heck of a lot. The Blazers will next be in action tomorrow night in Saskatoon when they take on the Blades. Um, meanwhile, uh, of course, let's take a look here at the World Junior Selection Camp. Kamloops forward Connor Zeri is, of course, looking to make his way onto that team after being a last-minute invite. Canada was on the ice yesterday in Oakville against the U Sports All-Stars, and the two sides will be back on the ice again today. Today's matinee contest against the U Sports All-Stars could be the final audition for some World Junior hopefuls for Team Canada. Zeri is set to hit the ice again today, and uh, judging by what happened at the, the practice, it uh, looks like he is set to center a line with Peyton Krebs from the Winnipeg Ice and Raphael Lavoie of the Halifax Moosehead. So Mobile we'll uh, looking at him and see what he's able to do here today, and if it, uh, of course, will help his chances of making Team Canada. That, of course, World Junior Tournament is set to begin in the Czech Republic starting on Boxing Day. So they have uh, exactly two weeks here to uh, figure out uh, the best lineup to put on the ice for Game 1. Of course, those selections will be made uh, in the not-too-distant future. And uh, we should know in uh, in a little bit if Connor Zeri will be back playing for Kamloops after the Christmas break. Um, the Blazers take on the Blades here on Friday. Like I'd mentioned, they take on Saskatoon tomorrow night. And then the CHL's sixth-ranked team, the Prince Albert Raiders, they will take their um, holiday break after that game on Saturday. Like I said, the Prince Albert Raiders ranked sixth in the Canadian Hockey League rankings, so they're uh, definitely going to be a bit of a tough challenge here for Kamloops. Uh, they haven't played too many ranked teams. I think Everett's in there, and I know uh, Portland has been ranked in there as well. So they've had uh, some luck against some of those ranked teams, and we'll see if they're able to uh, muster up and, and, and compete here with the uh, CHL. CHL's sixth-ranked team right now, the Prince Albert Raiders. Like I said, that game will be coming up on Saturday night. Uh, well, with all of that hockey talk now out of the way, I guess we should move on to some more serious issues. Uh, I'll be chatting with Kamloops City Councilor Dale Bass after the break about the need for more funding for sexual assault centers here across the province of British Columbia. So stay tuned. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. 
Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, December the 12th. Thanks so much for tuning in. A Kamloops city councilor is pushing for the provincial government to step up to the plate and fund sexual assault centers here across British Columbia. Dale Bass wants the city to officially support the Victoria Sexual Assault Center, which has made the request to pro to for the province to resume funding for sexual assault centers. And here now to talk about this is Councilor Dale Bass. Dale, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for calling me. So, I guess just first and foremost, why was this something that you felt the need to bring up here this week? What What is it about this particular issue, I guess, that really, um, you know, has your attention and made you want to speak up? Well, let's move back to 2004 uh, when I was working at Canlips this week and the provincial government of the day pulled the money that was funding their Call, let's call it a hotline. It was a phone service where people could call in and get some advice and get some counseling who had been victims of sexual assault. And it was gone. And it's been gone ever since. And it, it was, you know, at the time it was, there was a hue and a cry because this is a very needed service and it sort of died off through the years. So um, Grace Lohr, uh, at with the Victoria uh, Center, wants to see the funding restored, particularly so that that. that better services can be provided. It's kind of like a, uh, a one-stop clinic, if you will, where you where a, pers a person presents her, him or herself at ER. The triage nurse can call, get somebody over there to help the person get through the entire process, and then follow through all the way should they go to court, things like that. We need that. Unfortunately, we need that. Yeah, it's definitely a very valuable service. I think there's no denying that, and and uh, it's it's something that I think that you know when you look at the rates of sexual assault that occur, I believe it's one in every three women experiences some form of sexual assault in their lifetime. So it's clearly something that uh, is far too prevalent in our society. And when it happens, they people need somewhere to turn to help deal with their problems. So what can you tell me, I guess, about uh, this call from from the Victoria Sexual Assault Center first and foremost? Because you mentioned they're kind of the ones leading the charge here. So what kind of conversations have you had with them when it comes to this? you know funding in 2004 it's been lost it's obviously had a significant impact on their ability to operate so just you know, can you can you at all relay just sort of the the um, concern that that the these sexual assault centers have about this lack of funding and, and the need for more like what kinds of concerns and, and how serious of an issue is it has it has it been raised in in your perspective well, when in speaking with Grace, it was obvious that they're funding a not, you know, an adequate, fairly adequate, but not perfect service through grants, getting grants and things like that. Here in Kamloops, the Kamloops Sexual Assault Counseling Center um, started a, a similar program on weekends only that was funded through civil forfeiture money. And subsequent to that, they've been able to get some other funding that so now they can do it evenings and weekends. But that's not sustainable money. That's that's constantly trying to get the money. And in the case of the Camelot Center, they're doing all this off the side of their desk. They're staffing the, the, the phone line that they have and the, and the, the consulting that they do with, with uh, patients with volunteers. There's not one staff member dedicated to running this program. They're just they're making it happen because they believe in it. And I think from what I understand from talking to Grace and what I just simply know, other centers are in the same boat. They just don't. There's no sustainable funding that you can count on year after year after year that will fund it properly. And so, you as as a Kamloops City Councilor, like, sort of, what what is the call that you're making? What is the steps that you are asking Council to do in order to help um, receive more funding from the province? What what exactly are the steps that you're taking there as as a council and as a city councilor to to at least ask the government to to step up to the plate here with some more funding? 
Grace has a letter, a template that she's been sending out that um, different organizations and municipalities that are supporting her campaign can modify to suit their own requirements and I passed that along to our staff and shared that with city council as well. So fundamentally it's just joining in this movement, this action plan that Grace Laura started and and tell and make it clear to the government who by the way has indicated they get it. It's just that it's not in the budget yet and the budget closes off in March and, and this is an extra push to remind the government that they said they understand, so show you understand. Put it in the budget. Yeah, um, I guess, was this, I understand I, that this was brought up at UBCM here earlier this year. I don't know if you were involved in those conversations, but there's clearly a, a discussion that's happening in regards to the need for more funding for these sexual assault centers. Were you a part of that conversation at all, or, or were you privy to it? Yeah, I knew about it, but um, actually Grace was talking to uh, the then president of UBCM, Arjun Singh, mm-hmm. and he's the one who brought me into the conversation because he knew um, my past experience having covered the, the local sexual assault center for years and years and years, and being um, really well aware of the issue here. Okay. Um, and, and I guess what, what kind of response, I mean, at UBCM, obviously, uh, you know, you, you, you've spoken with Arjun because he's a city councilor here in Kamloops as well, and uh, he seems to, from what I understand, also be supportive of this initiative. I mean, it doesn't seem like something that anyone's poo-pooing at this point, right? Everyone seems to be in favor of, of supplying more funding to these centers. It's just a matter, I guess, of where this money is going to come from, right? Is that sort of the same way you get it? Well, yeah, everyone understands it, and the government says they, they understand it. Um, Mental Health and Addictions Minister Judy Darcy went through the Victoria Center recently, and she said she gets it. Everyone gets it, but it, until it's in that budget, until it's a line item in that budget, they're just it's just lip service. And all we're trying to do, and all UBCM tried to do, all the other municipalities and organizations are trying to do, is just remind the government that, yeah, we know you move slowly, but we sure like to see them there pretty soon. Yeah, I think this is an issue that probably just requires a lot of voices to speak up to, and councils mm-hmm. like here in Kamloops and um, other councils across the province as well, I'm sure, are going to be throwing their voice behind this, and uh, maybe mm-hmm. if, if enough people speak up, there there will be some changes made and some more uh, stream will, uh, a bigger stream will come online for, for these sexual assault centers in order to be able to provide the services that people need when they are a victim of, of this kind of activity, which is obviously something that we don't want anyone to deal with, but uh, unfortunately it's a reality. Um, uh, Dale, just while I have you on the phone, here. I did want to ask a quick question as well because you were one of the more outspoken counselors this week when it came to the uh, downtown transportation choices strategy and just sort of uh, mm-hmm. the concern about uh, w- one, one thing that popped out to me uh, was the conversation around I guess a push for people to buy online. This was something that you seemed to take big issue with. Um, I just wanted to kind of get a quick thought on, on sort of what was in that report that really triggered you in that, in that point. Well, on that, there are many things within that report that I had issue with, but, and, and it seems like such a silly little thing, but I think it speaks to perhaps the mindset behind the, the consultancy that was writing this report. One way to stop people from driving downtown, or they can shop with local business people, is to promote online shopping. That makes no sense to me. And I, I, I don't think it would make any sense to anybody who runs a business in this town. We want to encourage people to shop locally. We say this all the time. The reality is that for a lot of areas of the city, they have to drive to get there. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was just, it was a, a phrase. And other counselors also commented on it before our meeting, saying, "Did you see that? How can anybody think that promoting not shopping locally is going to be good for the city?" So that was that was just one of several issues within that report that I I had I had problems with.
Was there anything else that you wanted to highlight here? We got about 30 seconds left. So just from that particular point of view, I guess, what, what, what were the other major things that stood out to you as some issues that you took with that strategy? Well, quite simply, I was asked recently what, what they would have to do for me to support it. I said, do it right. If you're going to find out why people are driving from other parts of the city downtown and, and driving their cars, greenhouse gases, parking, all of those issues, don't just talk to the downtown neighborhood associations where they can walk and bike. Go out to Rayleigh, go out to Hefley, go out to Barnhartvale, go out to Pineview. Talk to, as, as Mayor Ken said during it, he said, go to Costco. You know, go, go right. where there are loads of people who, ha who drive their cars and find out why they drive. And I think then that the, um, the city will hear it's because of uh, transit, it's because of conveniency, it's because of a lot of other reasons that need to be built into understanding how to reduce traffic and, tra and, and vehicular traffic in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something I'm interested in. And as someone who lives and works downtown, I want to see more people uh, spending time down here as well. So thanks so much for doing this, Dale. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for calling. Right on. Bye. That was Kamloops City Councilor Dale Bass speaking to the need for more funding for sexual assault centers here in BC and also there at the end as well. We touched on the uh, downtown transportation strategy as well. Uh, coming up next, electric vehicles. The province is looking to have many of them on the road, all of them on the road come 2040, uh, but someone's got to take care of them. So we'll be talking about how to fix them after this. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, December the 12th. And thank you so much for tuning in. With uh, support from Clean BC, a new electric vehicle training program for automotive technicians has been completed. It's first pilot and will now be available to, to people to start taking in 2020. The newly developed EV maintenance training program at the British Columbia Institute of Technology will make sure the province's workforce has the skills and training needed to support more electric vehicles on the road. I am joined now by the Associate Dean for Automotive Program, Mubasher Faruqi. Mubasher, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jeff. Nice to be on the show. All right, so let's just start off by kind of figuring out how this came to be. I mean, why did BZIT sort of want to be the, the leader in this uh, particular skill set? I mean, this is something that's unique. It's something that, uh, you know, the province has been pushing for to see more electric vehicles on the road. And now you guys there at BCIT are starting to take the lead. First of all, I think, you know, at BCIT, we're, we're probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, automotive training provider in, in the province. Um, so taking a lead on this was something that, you know, we know there's a need in, in the industry for this. So we, we're more than happy to to work with the uh, Ministry of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources to get this underway. Um, we don't, we didn't really see anyone else sort of diving into it. And like I said, just, just being at the forefront of uh, a lot of the technician training in the province, we were more than happy to jump in and, and start working on that project. So you successfully completed the first pilot. I mean, can you kind of take me through the timeline of how that was developed and, and just sort of what the pilot looked like? Uh, I guess approximately, it was a little over 14 months ago, uh, we identified that there's, you know, let's, EVs are, are, are not going anywhere. So there's a definite need right now for technician training for those primarily who are not associated with the manufacturers. So if you're not working at a dealership, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of technicians out there that don't have the ability to access training on any new product. And with the safety component just alone on electric vehicles, um, we saw that there's definitely a need to get people trained on this. And it's, it's a game changer in our industry. You're talking about a completely different uh, propulsion system on vehicles today than the internal combustion engine. And as I mentioned, the safety being the forefront of 
navigating your way around one of these vehicles, we thought, you know, this is this is an excellent opportunity for us to, you know, highlight uh, not only our abilities, but, you know, take the lead on the project as you initiated. Now, it's not like electric vehicles are necessarily brand new. I mean, we see lots of Teslas and Priuses on the road and things like that. So there are a lot of uh, electric or semi-electric vehicles that are out there. So it's not necessarily a new thing, but it does feel like something that maybe mechanics side might be a little bit behind on just because it is something that's, uh, you know, they probably don't see every day coming into their shop and looking to fix. How much different is it for mechanics uh, who are working on an electric vehicle as compared to, you know, just your standard gas-powered engine? Well, it's quite a bit different, um, but you know, if you if you step back a little bit, and if we look at the evolution of automobiles, you know, over the last ten or fifteen years, um, we've always been able to sort of quickly adapt to some of the changes in technology that are, are being introduced on vehicles. But this was uh, significantly different because, as I mentioned, I keep going back to the safety piece. But you're talking about voltages here that potentially can be quite dangerous if you know if not handled properly. So just using that as a starting point, um, we thought it's it's imperative that we you know we we at least allow those folks who don't have access training get properly trained so that we can at least meet the needs of all these vehicles that are, we're seeing on the roads today so that was kind of how it started and, and where we, how we got to where we are today okay but but i just mean like for a general person i guess you know if, if i was trained uh, you know 10 years ago myself say just for example and i've i've never actually done any mechanic work over the course of that 10 years i'm not employed as a mechanic but i was trained on how to be one um i mean could i just go ahead and start working on an electric vehicle or would it be something totally foreign it, in some cases, it would be totally foreign, for, for sure. I think it's what is really imperative, and that's actually what, one of the things we did. We used uh, our benchmark right now of Red Seal technicians because at least that way we know that we, the, somebody working on one of these vehicles would have the fundamental skill sets required to working on one of these electric vehicles. And, and that said, electro, uh, electronics alone were, is one of the key uh, elements that you really need to understand obviously, before you start working on one of these vehicles. So, you know, to answer your question, is it something that's potentially um, completely new? In some cases, yes, but in a lot of cases, it's not, because electric, electronics have been around vehicles for a long, long time. It's, I think, primarily the voltages that we're seeing here, the, the one thing that you really, really have to be uh, careful about. So, from in certain aspects, it's, it is a similar, or it's not unfamiliar, but in many aspects, because of the voltages you're dealing with, it's, it's significantly different. Okay. Does so, that help? Yeah, just, I'm just trying to figure out sort of what the, the drastic differences, I guess, would be if I took a regular mechanical course as opposed to taking this um, when we're looking at electric vehicle training and just, you know, how, how it would compare. Because it sounds like, you know, you guys are, are piloting a project and are now, you know, offering this available to the public starting next year. Um, so, so obviously there's got to be some differences opposed to just, you know, regular mechanic course that uh, would, would be available prior to this. Right. Well, okay. Well, let's probably put it this way. You're, the, the, the biggest significant difference on these vehicles is you're, different, you're dealing, obviously, with from a gasoline-powered engine to an electric motor and a battery. Now, the components required around an uh, electric motor to drive the vehicle and a battery that powers the vehicle is significantly different than an internal combustion engine. That said, it's actually... In, in many, in a lot of cases, quite much easier to work around those systems because there's a lot less moving parts. There's a lot uh, less components required to for the functionality of the electric motor. So that much is going to be a easier to grasp. You're not dealing with the, you know um, uh, a multitude of of components required to power the vehicle, um, but. Outside of that, everything else around the vehicle is essentially the same. Like when you're talking about the HVAC systems, the radio systems, the braking system, well, braking system, not necessarily. Um, all the other elements around the vehicle typically are staying the same. It's really the focus around the, the powertrain system that's changing, the engine and transmission and, of course, the battery. 
And then in some cases, you're dealing with a fuel cell vehicle, and now you're dealing with a hydrogen-powered vehicle. So those three elements, if you can break it down to that, are the, where the significant difference is. But the rest of the vehicles primarily are staying the same. How, how quickly are, uh, are you, from your perspective, as, a, as a, someone who, who works around vehicles and has seen sort of a transition that's slowly taking place from gas-powered motors to electric motors, um, I mean, how, how rapidly is the landscape of the automotive industry changing? I'm just curious, like, you guys developed this program now, and it's going to start to being offered uh, in 2020. Do you first see a, a lot of significant changes coming, you know, as electric vehicles become more popular and become uh, basically, I guess, the, the only thing that is on the road, right? 2040 is when the, the province is hoping to have only electric vehicles on the road or, or zero emissions vehicles on the road. Um, I mean, do you, do you see um, in the, over that, you know, 20 years, is, do you think there's going to be a huge change in how vehicles, specifically cars, will be operated on and, and will be worked on? Or, uh, I mean, it's hard to predict 20 years. That's a long time. But I'm just curious if, you know, over the last 20 years, has there been a significant change in how vehicles are, are worked on? And, and could that potentially translate to 20 years from now? For sure. I mean, over the last 20 years, there's been a significant difference in how vehicles to, are, are worked on. And that's primarily driven by all the technology that's been introduced right, in these vehicles. Right. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. And I mean, a good example of that is look at all the talk about autonomous vehicles. Uh, manufacturers are moving quite quickly at trying to, to design a, a perfectly 110% safe vehicle that can drive autonomously. So, you know, just using that uh, alone gives you an idea of where we're heading with, uh, with vehicles. I don't think the, this conversation around autonomous vehicles is going to go away anytime soon. If anything, I think more and more manufacturers are going to be striving to actually find a way to make an uh, autonomous vehicle work. And that's just going to keep driving um, the way vehicles are worked on in the future and, and all the new technologies that keep coming into the marketplace. Maybe so, just, I guess, for anyone who's listening who might be interested, um, you know, what, what is the process in terms of the, the course itself? Like, how long would it take to, to graduate if I were to take this? So what we've done is right now we've we've we're rolling it out for Red Seal technicians. Okay, so at least we know we have an, uh, at least a benchmark where we can um, have technicians that have some level of training that we can be confident that they understand the systems right. we're going to be introducing. So this program, it's important to know, is really designed for technicians who've been sort of experienced at the very least has a re have Red Seal uh, certification. And from there, we're thinking we're we're starting at about a 36-hour program, which is just a little over a week long. Um, but as things evolve, uh, we might need to add some, uh, some more to that um, right. right now. It looks like that's, we're comfortable. That's why we ran the, the two pilots, uh, just to make sure that, okay, do, are, we, do, are we training too little? Do we need to add a little bit more? But it looks like what, right now about 36 hours is, is going to be sufficient knowledge required for technicians, to, again, to be confident with the repairs and navigate around these vehicles. So that could change as new technologies get introduced in the marketplace. Um, but the two piles basically gave us a, a really good uh, comfort level of saying, yeah, you know, I think we're hitting the mark. The feedback we were getting has uh, been well received. So if that changes in the future, which I don't think it will, um, it looks like, you know, a, between a week, maybe a week and a half, um, should be sufficient. I should also add one other thing. The next thing, the next segment to this uh, this course we're planning to roll out sometime in the mid part of 2020 will be uh, an introduction to fuel cells because fuel cells right now are just starting to enter the market. There's only two manufacturers that are actually um, putting two fuel cell production vehicles on the market. So as we, if we see a sort of a, a more of our uprise and, and uptake in that market, um, we're, we're going to have a course. It's, it's almost in the final stages of, of development right now. We'll be introducing the fuel cell portion of this, it will be, which will be a complement to the electric vehicle training. 
Um, the only difference is, you know, when an electric vehicle that's powered by a battery versus an electric vehicle that's powered by a fuel cell. So okay. those are good examples of how we're, you know, we're planning to sort of keep pace with what's happening in industry. Yeah, and, and from what I, I know about fuel cells, which isn't a whole lot, but I understand that that's sort of the, the way of the future here, so it definitely makes sense that you would look to that as well. I will say that on the commercial transport and heavy-duty side, uh, there, is a, there is a number of manufacturers, um, but that's being looked at more so on a heavy-duty and commercial transport side, the hydrogen fuel cell piece, mm-hmm. uh, because the range is much, much greater on, on hydrogen than it is with the battery, I should say. Right. Um, so it's getting a lot of attention, especially down in the in the California area, like around the port of Los Angeles. There's a tremendous amount of work being done on uh, vehicles powered by fuel cells. Just saw a hydrogen filling station um, go up at the Shell station across the street from BCIT here. So it looks like people are you know planning to put these cars in on the road pretty soon. Well, I shouldn't say people, but manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, the filling stations are coming as part of the infrastructure to to um, service these vehicles. It's, it looks like it's it's coming. I'm sure it is, and uh, yeah, we're all kind of paying attention. Like I said, the, that 2040 mark for for the province to get zero emission vehicles all on the road is uh, will be will be fast approaching. I'm sure it'll be here before we know it, and then then we'll be uh, without gas. So that'll change uh, the, the infrastructure for sure. I, for sure. I think it's just a matter of, of uh, when, not if. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Mubasher, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was Associate Dean for Automotive Program at BCIT, Mubasher Faruqi, talking about its new electric vehicle training program for automotive technicians. Coming up next, it is flu season. If you're feeling sick, are you planning on going to a walk-in clinic? Well, maybe you want to know just how long you're going to have to sit in that waiting room before you get there. We'll I'll be talking about how to find that information out after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, December 12th. Thanks so much for tuning in. An online tool has taken on the task of finding out how long people will have to wait to see a doctor when attending a walk-in clinic here across Canada and British Columbia didn't get a stunning endorsement. So it is that time of year, of course, when perhaps you're starting to feel that cold or flu bug coming on and maybe you want to see a doctor to try and nip it in the bud before it begins. Maybe you have injured yourself in a way that does not feel like an emergency, but you still feel the need to go get it checked out. You don't have a family doctor or you don't have the time to wait for your family doctor to open up and get an appointment. What options do you really have? Well, I'm joined now by the CEO of Medimap, Blake Adam. Blake, thanks so much for coming on the show here. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let me just start by kind of getting a picture here of what British Columbia looks like. So you have kind of looked at the wait times, the average wait times for walking clinics across Canada, and uh, BC seems to be one of the provinces that has a bit of a longer wait time. So can you just sort of go over some of the data here as it relates to British Columbia? For sure. Yeah, this is the uh, the first time that this type of information has ever been available, and we've been tracking it for years through uh, Medimap.ca, which is just a free resource that anyone in the country can use to look up wait times at clinics in their community. But we looked at a snapshot over the past year um, and compared average wait times by community and then by province. And uh, what we found, it was, it was fascinating. We, we found that, um, on average, a, a patient going to a clinic somewhere in B.C., to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic um, will end up waiting about twice as long as someone going to a clinic in Ontario or Alberta, for example. 
So, yeah, B.C., one of the longer provinces when it comes to how long you're going to have to wait when visiting a walk-in clinic. Uh, from, from what I was able to see, it's not the worst in the province or in the country, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's that's right. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's uh, it, for us, it's not really about trying to draw conclusions as to whether there are a bunch of variables that can affect mm-hmm. wait times at clinics, but um, um, we thought this was important information to uh, make known to Canadians so that uh, there's uh, it elevates the conversation around access to care at the provincial and, and national level. Yeah, it's definitely some interesting information. And uh, um, so, so what exactly were you able to find out? I mean, you said you didn't want to get into too many of the determining factors, I guess. So, uh, you know, when, when you were uh, sort of collecting this data about how long people were waiting, I guess, how did you go about doing that? Like, what, what were you able to, uh, what kinds of data were you able to collect in order to find this information? Yeah, so the way our platform works is we um, we work with clinics and their staff actually update the wait times to, to our website about every half hour throughout the day. And we work with about 70% of the walk-in clinics across the country. So um, we, we went back and, uh, and took the averages uh, across various communities that we work in um, to, um, to, to compare the wait times across the span of a year that, uh, that clinics were reporting. And, you know, the most interesting, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting indicator to look at the wait times as an average by community or by province, but when you go down to the day-to-day in a specific community, hour by hour, what, what's important to an individual as a patient when they're trying to see a doctor, um, it's just fascinating to see how one clinic in a community might have a four-hour wait when another has a a 20-minute wait, um, often it's just a, a fact that people don't know where they can get the most immediate access to care, and, and that's kind of what we, we're trying to solve for with MediMap. Yeah, so I guess uh, from that perspective, if people are looking to uh, go somewhere to, to try to receive some care and, and don't want to sit around for four hours, MediMap would be a good resource to, to look and see. You know, you guys have a pretty up-to-date snapshot of, of how long you're going to have to wait in, in the immediate, right? Like, that's from what I was able to see anyway, it looked like if you typed in your community, uh, kind of told you, um, you know, just how long you might be waiting depending on which clinic you go to. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And also, if the clinic is closed early for the day, which is equally as important because nobody likes making the trip down to a clinic that is supposed to be open only to find that they've stopped taking patients for the day. Um, so, is there a reason why you didn't sort of look uh, any deeper? Is it because MediMap is obviously just there to, to try and uh, tell you how long the wait time is going to be? Is there a reason why you haven't, at least at this point, uh, started to try and dig a little deeper into the reasonings behind that? Uh, you know, for us, it's um, our, our objective is just to provide Canadians with tools that make healthcare more convenient and accessible. Um, I, I think it's really up to the, the healthcare system as a whole, our, our healthcare leaders, to um, address those those bigger problems. So um, we just stick to what we're good at, which is providing technology that makes life easier for patients when they need to access care. That's totally fair. I just uh, thought it would be worth asking the question. So, uh, sure. yeah, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the province as a whole and, and BC, you know, is uh, one of the longer provinces in terms of wait times. It's about 50 minutes here. And I think Nova Scotia was the uh, top province or the longest wait times with about 69 minutes. So, uh, a little bit better than, than the worst, but still a long ways to go to catch up to other provinces such as uh, Alberta, where it's only a 23-minute, or, or Ontario, like you had mentioned, 25 minutes. So uh, still a long way to go to catch up to them. But for those here in Kamloops, where, where our radio station here is based out of, uh, you know, you, you had mentioned to me before we jumped on the air here that uh, it's not uh, quite a great picture uh, of what's going on in Kamloops. So what, what, can, what is the reasoning that Kamloops isn't uh, painted maybe as nicely as some other communities here in B.C.? 
I think the the challenges for access to care in Kamloops are, are pretty well documented. But the, the, basically, what it comes down to is um, uh, there aren't any walking clinics in, in Kamloops. There, there's one that's uh, pretty much full every day, and uh, and then that's about it. So. Um, uh, you know, when when we look at that, the list of the clinics that we were able to get data for, um, you know, Sydney, Victoria, Langford, these are the communities where people are waiting kind of over an hour and a half on average um, at, that are at the top of the list. Um, Kamloops, we didn't we didn't have any data to go by because there were no clinics. So. Well, that's some good stuff there, Blake. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was the CEO of Medimap, Blake Adam. Interesting stuff. So if you want to find out exactly how long it would take to get in at a walk-in clinic, you can log on to medimap.ca and type in your location, and it will then just let you know how long the expected wait time will be at each individual walk-in clinic in that community. It's a, it's an interesting tool. I spent some time playing around with it, but uh, as Blake had mentioned there, um, not a lot of data here for Kamloops, and more importantly, not enough clinic space. I personally haven't gone to a walk-in clinic yet since I moved here, thankfully, but I have talked to some people who say sometimes they just, uh, when they think about going to a clinic to get checked out, they just decide not to go because they don't want to spend 60 plus minutes in a waiting room. And I got to say, I don't blame anyone who feels that way. I also wanted to point out here that I never said his name wrong. I'm sure there was no one who would have noticed if I did, but uh, sometimes when speaking to someone who has two first names, my brain just likes to flip them. But uh, thankfully, I did not get Blake Adams' name wrong. So I just wanted to brag a little bit about that. Well, that wraps things up for me here today. I wanted to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'm off here for the next little while, but Jason Hewlett will be in tomorrow morning at 9.